You're not gonna say it Somebody should Let's talk about two time Let's talk about bum one, yeah Asking the questions That nobody could Like where are the bone thoughts And are they in harmony Hey everybody, welcome. Um, today, so uh, it's new book week for for my friend Chuck Palahniuk. It's always exciting for me when he has a new book come out. Um, if you haven't read his last one, it was a nonfiction, a how-to-write book, I suppose, um, called Consider This. And a lot of a lot of what he talks about in that book is stuff I've talked about on this show, but um, stuff he also learned from Tom Spanbauer. Um, anyway, it's re- it's good. I mean, if you have an interest in writing at all, this is you know one of the best books you can read. I think because um, well, what I'll say is like I think there there are kind of two schools of how to writing books. Okay, there's the school that's basically like motivational, like uh, uh, what's the steal like an artist? Let's say is basically like make stuff, you know, it's good, like creative process and so on, and those are fine. Like I, I don't have a problem with them, but also, um, I think I, I end up liking the other school better, which is the school that gives you concrete uh, rules and things to do. So, you know, like when you, when you work with Tom or when you work with Chuck, you'll go through like different restrictions. So for example, no thought verbs, right? So you can't say he thought, he wished, he wanted, you know, things like that. You have to, instead, instead of saying he wanted something, you have to describe his boner or whatever, right? You describe a physical manifestation of something. Um, the idea being, you're not just living in the mind, you're living a life of the mind. You're helping the reader experience, you know, with their mirror neurons, the uh, sensations, the on-the-body sensation, as Tom would put Anyway, point being, um, it's great, and you really should check it out. But his new one is out, Invention of Sound. And uh, to sort of celebrate that, I, I reviewed some reviews of Chuck Palahniuk for a Lit Reactor column. Um, but I thought I would just talk about him a little more because uh, it was funny. I, I uh, got on the idea because he Chuck was on a podcast and was talking about, um, you know, a terrible review he'd gotten. And he kind of, I guess, I don't know if he, I would say he got a reputation, but, you know, he did go back at one reviewer one time in like 2003 maybe um, but the reason he said he went back at the reviewer uh, was because the reviewer was making fun of his audience um, which she was she she described uh, these oversized men who you're seated next to in airplanes and at bars who you know like to talk about reading Chuck Palahniuk novels and basically like how edgy they are or something Maybe like an edgelord thing before that was a thing. Um, And she just really did not like that. And uh, I felt like, well, here's what was kind of funny too. So she writes this in Salon. 
Salon published Chuck's response, which was basically like, um, I've never responded to a review, but I've never had one that was so mean-spirited before. And he was like, you know, I, if you've written a book, go ahead and send it to me. I'd look forward to reading it. Um, but if you haven't, you know, maybe like, maybe try and make something and see it's very difficult, which is something I have often said on this show, which is like, it is hard to make shit. I mean, so anyway, um, and that was, that was kind of what set me on this path of like, maybe I'll see like other reviews that people have done of him and see where they get it wrong. Cause I suspect a lot of them get it wrong. Um, one of the things, I think it was this same review, but I'm not totally sure. Um, but one of the things that I think this review also got wrong was she was talking about how, oh, Chuck makes all these factual errors and it's like makes his books unreadable. So, for example, he was talking about when people um, die from being burned and how they uh, get in this what they call pugilist position with their arms up, you know, in front of their chest and stuff and how their hands curl so that their fingernails dig into their wrists. And she's like, that's physically impossible. Like, you can't do that. Um, which, first of all, I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what happens when your body is, like, completely burned to a crisp. Maybe some things that don't normally happen. But also, one of the biggest mistakes people make is they say, they attribute what Chuck's characters say to Chuck saying it. Um, he uses this example a lot. He talks about Gone with the Wind. And he says, you know, Scarlet is like, oh, th there's not going to be a war. And so you're listening to that and thinking, oh, you, you beautiful, dumb woman. There is definitely going to be a war and it's going to destroy your entire world. <laughs> but that's the point is like the audience is smarter than the character. And so, even if there is a, you know, factual error, it's like, well, that's how people talk, though. They exaggerate things, and they say things that aren't true, but, you know, you can't really prove them to be untrue so much. See, and one of the things, too, is, like, I think it's hard to look at a pre-internet era book in a post-internet era um, world and sort of, like go through and calculate or tabulate the facts and like fact check the entire thing. Now you could definitely do that with a factual book that's purported to be factual. But when you're talking about something like someone being burned alive and kind of what happens physiologically, I think the idea here is that you're reading this book and you know, you're, you're hearing the narrator's voice. They have a voice and they're, they're telling you these things and you're supposed to sort of be on the edge of like, is this believable? Is this not believable? I'm not sure. So I think it's, on one hand, it could be fairly genius because this could be another version of like, okay, I'm going to say something's a joke if everyone's mad at me for it. But if they think it's brilliant, then I'll say it's true. <laughs> but I, and I don't really believe in that so much. I think a lot of people say that that's what people are doing, that you know, they'll be like, oh, a comedian said this, and then they said it was just a joke. And I'm like, I mean, I think you've got a pretty good... You've got a pretty good backstory if you're like, well, this dude's been a comedian for 25 years, and 
He was on a stage where people were going to see him at a place called, you know, the Comedy Zone or whatever. $18 nachos. And it's like, all right. So now, but despite all that and him telling us that it's a joke, that seems like two very strong things in his favor. But because we don't like the joke, we're going to be like, or because we don't like that person, we're going to be like, eh, that probably wasn't a joke. This is just a cover. And I think that same thing is happening with him a little bit, which is like, for some reason, we don't like him. And so now we're going to say like, oh, okay. That it can't possibly be a fact that he got wrong for the purpose of, you know, his character getting a fact wrong, because that is like a character building thing. I mean, like, it's a character building thing that he uses, which is one of Tom's things called burnt tongue, which is saying things wrong. You know, you mishear something and then say it wrong, and then you've always had it that way your entire life. Like, uh, I remember when we were kids, one of my siblings would always say spay paint instead of spray paint, right? And so you say it that way, and it's like, oh, that's like a cute little thing a kid says. Or, you know, uh, I when I was a kid, I remember hearing the song Eleanor Rigby and thinking it said all the lovely people when really it said all the lonely people. And then, so you hear that and then, you know, I tell, oh, I heard it this way, but it's really this way. And it's like, okay, that reveals something about this person's character, which is like maybe the way they saw the world as a young person, as a child, was uh, optimistic and, you know, sunshiny. And maybe it's less so now. So anyway... Um, But the review was really mean-spirited, and also, I agreed. I think taking it to the audience for something is going too far. And I I feel this way, too, about things like, um, let's say, like a Twilight book. And it's like, ugh, this is just for teen girls, and teen girls are idiots or something. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, I probably don't want to read the same books that teen girls love. But, I don't know, there... Yeah, they're teen girls. They like different shit. I mean, is that, that's not really a distinction of quality for me. It's a distinction of like, well, yeah, some things that appeal to teen girls don't appeal to me. But I mean, I I would have to be without sin to cast the stone on that one. And like, I like some dumb shit. And I like some dumb shit that definitely would not appeal to a lot of other people. A lot of other people would find some of the things I like incredibly stupid. Um, But anyway, and I just, I felt like, it seemed like this reviewer was saying she was like plagued by these guys who love Chuck Palahniuk and um, don't love, I don't know what she wants them to love, but they don't love that. And like, this was like a big problem for her. And I just kind of thought that was bullshit. I mean, I just felt like, is that really a big problem for you that like, uh, people like this book and not that book. And I think it's aged very poorly because we're coming up on 20 years later. And now it's like, hey man, I would, if someone was reading a goddamn book, that would be a huge thing. But nobody's reading books anymore. So it's not even like a matter of dividing it into trash and not trash as far as books go. It's like, has this person read any kind of book? Any, any sort of thing that's between covers is uh you know it's all it's all been a little bit compressed and flattened into 
an on-off switch instead of a, uh, you know, more of a gradient. It's a little bit more binary for me now, which is like, have you read a book or not? And I, I just think that's aged really badly. And, and I think it's aged badly, too, because, you know, he has expressly tried to write books for people who traditionally don't feel included in the sort of world of literary fiction. You know, like, I, if I don't want to read about, um, a, I don't know, what's a typical thing? If I don't want to read Virginia Woolf, or I don't want to read, uh, you know, a Tom Wolf, anyone else, maybe even people not named Wolf, if I don't want to read those kind of books, it's like, well, what, what is there for me? And he's written books that are for people like that and people like me who don't love some of that stuff um, and do want their books to have a little bit more motion, more action, more, you know, just uh, carrying the weight of the story on the, the voice and the style and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that was, that was the one that prompted it. Um, and that was a review. I think that review was of Lullaby. It was funny, too, because you're sort of like, I'm not even totally sure this person has read the book. And it did seem like a cop-out way to review a book, which is to say, like, um, okay, I'm, I don't want to read this whole book. I don't like it. So here's what I'm going to do is kind of review the, the author as phenomenon instead of uh, reviewing the book thoughtfully. I think the next... Uh the next thing I found, you know, some mostly amateur reviewers went this way. Um, which, by the way, I do have to say, like, I have respect for amateur reviewers, being one myself, but also because, uh, maybe it's, maybe, uh, disrespect for pros and respect for amateurs goes together in my mind, or at least in, uh, my findings. So, uh, I, uh... I found some amateur reviews, and one of the themes there is they talked about Chuck being sort of the uh, M. Night Shyamalan of, uh, of books. So, you know, it's like a twist ending, and that's what he's always sort of going for. And, um, a lot of his books do have a, a twist in them, although a lot of them don't have the twist at the end or have a series of twists or, you know, various things, right? And I think that, like, well, all right, let's talk about M. Night. Um, I think that some of his movies, so, like, Sixth Sense is obviously where this starts, right? Um, but then his other movies don't really seem to be a twist. It seems to be prophecy stories. Like, Signs is kind of, okay, everything was laid out in advance, and we're sort of uncovering what it all means. But, uh... That seems different than a twist to me. And then uh, Lady in the Water is basically signs turned up to 11, where it's just, uh, okay, that's like completely a prophecy that's coming true, and that's sort of what we're witnessing. Um, so he probably, in, uh, what's the, uh, Unbreakable? That one sort of seems to not have a twist at all. That's just a superhero story. That, it really does seem... Like, you know, I know he's credited with what a twist and all that, but I I kind of think the more I think about him 
in his narratives. I think he's more into like, here's the story. We're going to set out the story sort of in advance and then watch the pieces fall into place. It's almost more like a heist movie in that way where it's like, okay, we see the people come together. We see the stuff happens as planned um, or we see them plan it. It happens as planned. There's a couple little twists and turns here to keep it interesting and then it's over. Um, I'm writing a uh, heist book right now. It's not serious. A person eats shit, literally. For good reason, though. This isn't just a gratuitous exercise. I mean, it is because it's fiction and I'm making it up. But uh, whatever. So anyway, uh, the guy just lost a bunch of shit out of his truck. Um, so I think M. Night gets a, a bad rap for that. I think... The thing is, is like, sometimes we like those stories, and I think maybe the key to that kind of story is we have to like something about it. And I don't know if his characters are super likable, and I don't know if his uh, prophecies that come true are super interesting, but whatever. Um, so he probably gets a bad rap because he, his most famous work does have a big twist. And that's the same with Chuck. Something that's interesting about Chuck is uh, he had kind of suggested when they were making the movie that they leave the twist out of it. Um, that, it, you know, just make them two different people and it doesn't really matter. Because he was like, I didn't really think that movie audiences would believe it. Like, I didn't really understand how you could do that in a movie. Um, in a book, it's easy because the visuals aren't always there and so on, so it kind of works, but... And it's, you know, told from a singular perspective, which is from this guy's perspective who's experiencing this multiple personality situation, whereas uh, a movie has a, a certain God perspective, unless it's a first-person thing, right? Okay, so anyway. Um, but his other books, I mean, they'll have a twist sometimes, sometimes not. But I think that what's interesting about that, you know, idea of excluding it in Fight Club is like, I don't really find that his books rely on the twist. So in other words, it's not like if I read up to the twist and then I don't dig the twist, it doesn't ruin the book for me. The book usually seems fine still. It's still totally enjoyable. It's still like uh, held my interest. You know, and maybe part of what holds my interest is I'm waiting for the twist, but and I guess I, I can see it. Like, I get it that some people are disappointed by the twist or some people just think it's, like, no good. But I also think, like, if you're reading for the twist, um, you might as well just read a summary of it. And then you would know whether or not you liked it. Um, and that's kind of... And I guess that's where I find, like, well, why are you reading a book then? I mean, I think most of us read books for entertainment, for, like... Uh, to kill time, right? I mean, why do we watch Netflix? I don't know. It's interesting. It's diverting. It makes us forget our problems. It makes us, uh, you know, we learn about something is sometimes the motivation. But, like, I don't usually think the motivation is, like, to absorb narrative as quickly as possible. You know what I mean? This is like, a, this is like when people talk about watching things at, you know, one and a half times speed. Because I'm like... 
Yeah, I could see it. Like, I'm sure you could watch Seinfeld at 1.5 times speed, and maybe it would be enjoyable still. Maybe you would feel like you're enjoying it on the same level, and if that's the case, then more power to you. But I guess I, when I, if I'm watching Seinfeld, I'm not really incentivized to like get plow through it as quick as possible. You know what I mean? Like that's not really the goal is to like, I'm gonna force through something that I supposedly like, and uh, the sooner I can get it done, the faster. Um, and I guess this is like this seems to be a sort of newer thing, and I don't know how to quantify it exactly like once upon a time it used to be sort of unusual to say like uh have a show like a, a joe bob briggs who's he's like well yeah i watch cult movies at the drive-in or i you know i talk about cult movies and stuff like that and uh you know that would be kind of his thing right or horror hosts would do similar stuff but like now it seems very common for people to do a thing, but then there's the other step, which is like, I'm going to do a thing about doing that thing. Whether that be a podcast or a, uh, a blog or a show on YouTube or whatever, I'm going to sort of put myself through a quest and then I need to do like a secondary sort of uh, expository thing with that quest. Like, it's almost like if you try to do something and you don't have a uh, secondary purpose behind it, then it's like, why are you even doing it? If the, uh, if the person watches all of Seinfeld and doesn't write a blog about it, did it even happen? Um, says the guy who does the amazing Spider webcast, which goes through all the issues of Spider-Man. <laughs> but whatever. I, I'm not saying I'm not guilty of it, but what I'm saying is, like, uh, I think people, like, review, read books differently now, because I think a lot of people who read books read them in order to uh, talk about them. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like bad form, because as a reader, you're reading, but you're also thinking, like, what am I going to say about this? And that's a little bit like, if you've ever had a conversation with somebody, I mean, if you haven't, you've lived a blessed life. But if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who basically you can tell they're spending the entire time waiting for their turn to talk, um, that's a little bit what it feels like. Is like somebody's reading this book and just itching to say what they want to say about it, rather than like, it's, it's almost like you can't enjoy a thing without, uh, you just can't enjoy a thing for what it is and then it's done. You know, and I just wonder, I was even, we were looking at, uh, YouTube stuff yesterday and I was asking Putin Master Flex if she'd ever heard of the food reviewer, who I think, uh, maybe his most famous was he reviewed Fruit Gushers. And it was funny because at the time when I had, uh, first encountered the food reviewer, he was like a little chubby 12-year-old kid or something. And he was just in his bedroom, basically, sitting on the floor. And he would be, like, reviewing food, quote-unquote. But he was just basically reviewing whatever was in the cabinet. Right? So he's like, I'm reviewing Gushers. And I remember at the time when I first saw him, which is probably like 10 years ago now, 
Um, this was like a novelty. Because you're like, why is this kid reviewing a thing that's like readily available to anyone? I mean, like, in theory, I guess, like, it's like, what's the purpose of a review? And I think the original purpose of a review might have been like, okay, if someone reviews a CD, <laughs> a CD, a compact disc, what they're doing for me is basically they're doing the service of reviewing it for me. So that uh, if I'm going to go out and buy a CD this week, I obviously am not going to be able to go and buy five CDs. So if I have money to buy one CD, reviews will help me know how to spend my money. But uh, now it's like food is not necessarily this way still, but like uh, mass consumer food definitely is, right? It's not like he's saving me a ton of time, money, or energy by reviewing Gushers. Because it's like, well, I could just go buy those for like four bucks or something. And if I didn't like them, it's not like I've now wasted a tremendous resource. You know, I've, I've misspent $4. Um, not a tragedy. So anyway, um, the food reviewer doing this was like such a novelty at the time. Like I remember watching it and just being like, why is this happening? What is this? I'm so confused. And now watching it in 2020, I'm sort of like, yeah, yeah, this is pretty standard fare. Like this is a normal thing to see someone doing, um, which is so crazy, right? It's like, yeah, why are we living... We're living in a world now where, uh, you know, you're watching the food reviewer and then you're watching people did reviews of the food reviewer. Or, you know, people people do all the time. They'll do reviews of, like, fast food items that you're like... I mean, you know, and they just eat it. You watch them eat it in their car and then they talk about what it tastes like. So it's weird. It's weird because on one hand it's like, ah, I get it, like... Okay, the New York Times food critic doesn't need to review fast food because it's like, well, people could just eat that anyway. But now that the means of disseminating this kind of information are available to everyone, some people are like, fuck it. I'm going to review Gushers. <laughs> All right, so then there was one that I read. And I try to keep the columns a little brief and usually fail. But uh, the versions you see are, like, way, way briefer versions than everything I had to say. Mostly because I find the shorter I make a column, the more people read it. Um, this is... I don't know if I've ever found this to be untrue. So unless a column absolutely requires a certain amount of information, I will not... I will make it as short as possible um, and still get the point across and throw in a couple jokes and a Demolition Man reference. So one of the other ones that I didn't get to talk about a lot was Adjustment Day. Um, adjustment Day is kind of, well, it's an interesting one because it's uh, one of his most, it's his most recent novel, I suppose, and um, it talks about a fictional day called Adjustment Day where Basically, it's a complete shift in power, uh, like world power, from traditional power things and structures like senators and shit like that to um, just being sort of more spread out to everyone. 
it's also probably a little bit of a I don't know if I'd call it a commentary, but it's like a an examination of identity politics. Um, because in Adjustment Day, in that world, the way things sort of work is that everybody divides up by um, either race or uh, gender or things like that. You know, they make their own countries. So, you know, um, black people basically completely claim Africa and that entire area, and then uh, there's Gaysia, which is where all the gay people go, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, there are some individuals who don't fit in with the place where they are, or where they want to be, or, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, um, one of the critiques of this was that uh, there weren't a lot, there wasn't enough character development, and that what the book should have been is it should have followed a few characters really closely instead of um, being what it was, which was more plot, less character. And I, I disagreed with this in some pretty severe ways. I don't know if I'd call it severe. I disagreed because, uh, all right, one thing a lot of people will do is they'll critique a book or a movie or something and say, there's no character development. Like, what does this character learn? This character should be changed between the beginning and the end of this story. And I don't agree with that. I don't think that's always true. I think there are many narratives where characters don't change, and uh, that's fine. I also think it's like, well, a story where a character doesn't change represents a certain version of reality, or a, a story where a character doesn't necessarily have a lot of agency, um, to me, reads as more realistic. Because I don't necessarily feel like I'm in control of a lot of aspects of my life. You know, like, I feel like my employer is in control of a lot of things, and um, just social mores and things are control a lot more than I do. So I don't really feel... I feel agency in some things, but not in others. So anyway... When you're talking about a book like Adjustment Day, which is like basically the entire power structure of the world changes, um, I think it would be weird to talk about that in such a way as like, oh, character agency and stuff, because when like a huge world event happens, I think the helplessness is a part of that. I think the sort of like, well, this is what we're doing now is part of the whole thing. I mean... You can tell a story like The Matrix, where it's like, yeah, basically this character is empowered and destroys The Matrix. But you can also tell a story like The Matrix, where um, to someone like me, it'll read as realistic, and basically it just continues, and like everything's fucked up and it sucks. And here we are. And that, that would read as realistic to me. And it depends, I guess, what your goal is and what your what you want someone to get out of it, sort of. Um, but yeah, I felt, I felt that it would be a disservice to the book to do it that way, because I think the way, the way Adjustment Day is written, it's almost like a non-fiction historical book. I compared it to, like, uh, if you read, like, World War II books, right? And they'll be about the battle of whatever, or some uh, small aspect of the conflict, you know, with the old breed at Peleliu and Okinawa. And so what you'll read about is basically this one conflict, 
and uh, oftentimes it'll follow uh, some characters, but A, the characters do not, I would say, develop very much um, as characters. They may do things, but you know, they don't change a lot, and that makes sense, because you're like, yeah, I mean, this person was in combat, this book basically spans, I don't know, a couple weeks? So I wouldn't think, and also the characters are under like tremendous stress and whatever. So it's like, I don't, I don't necessarily think this is like, and then that's when I realized blah, 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 which by the way is like one of my least favorite phrases. Uh, we'll get to that next, but so anyway, like the characters don't develop a lot and they also don't have agency. I mean... If you're on one of those fucking uh, boats and you're headed up to uh, the beach at Normandy on D-Day, like, that thing is going to fucking open up, dump you into the water, and uh, hopefully hopefully you're close enough that you can walk or swim out and uh, not get machine gunned immediately. You know what I mean? Like, that's your agency. So your agency is sort of there, but... I mean, we also have to think about agency on, like, well, am I going to blame someone who didn't survive that shit? Fuck no. Like, they had no chance. So, I mean, they also... Certainly their agency could help them, but also there's a severe cap, a limit on the agency. So anyway, I think Adjustment Day, to me, read a lot more like one of those types of books. And it doesn't make sense, and I, I kind of don't like, and I try to avoid myself now, like, rewriting a book. Because when you rewrite a book, um, it's one thing if you take a couple plot holes and you're like, well, look, they could have easily fixed these plot holes um, by doing X, Y, Z. And you're like, eh, okay. Or maybe there are some scenes that you're like, that could have been excised. But when you're like, they should, what they should have done is change the entire structure of the book. That, to me, is, like, not a good book review, because it's like, well, so you're basically saying you wish you were reading a different book, which makes sense, but, like, you can't morph this book into a book that you would want to read and then say, it's bad because it's not like this other book, <laughs> you know? That if I loved Catcher in the Rye... I, whoa, a dog just ran across the street and almost got killed, but didn't. Um, if I loved Catcher in the Rye... Oof, that was shocking. Um, if I loved Catcher in the Rye, it wouldn't be a valid critique of uh, Great Gatsby to be like, this should have been more like Catcher in the Rye in the following ways. I mean, maybe that's how I feel, and I probably would have enjoyed it more if that were true, but come on, guys. Like, that's not... Read Catcher in the Rye, then. You have Catcher in the Rye. Read that. If you really dislike a book that you read for whatever reason, okay, read read that other book, then. Or read something that you expect to be more like another book. And this is another critique I have of Chuck's Critics, which is like, look, this dude's written, like, a dozen books at this point. Like, for real. And so... You should know what you're getting into. You shouldn't be, like, surprised when you're like, hmm, this has some shock value to it. Hmm, this has some, like, repetitive language in it. Hmm, he's doing this and that. And it's like, okay, well, if you've never read this before, or it's like, well, I read Fight Club 15 years ago and choke, and that's it. 
And then you read Adjustment Day and you're like, huh, I kind of did this and that. It's like, no shit. I mean, that's exactly what other people are in for. Okay, the last one. Um, someone specifically said this about uh, Stranger Than Fiction, which is true stories. But uh, I think it applies to a lot of his stuff and a lot of his critics, which is... They said that, uh, you know, he didn't really draw conclusions. He didn't say how he felt about things. And I... That is, like, one of my least favorite critiques. I think it's, like, more in vogue now, but I'm not sure. Uh, maybe it's always been that way. But I think there's, like, a... People... People say they want to be... Well, in some situations, people are like, don't tell me how to feel. But then, when a book doesn't tell someone how to feel, they say, but how am I supposed to know how to feel about this? And I really think that's at the core of what he's doing, and it is, it is a core tenet of minimalism. Like, when Tom, in his class, what he would hate, more than anything, that I saw him really dislike, and I think it's because he saw it so often... Um, he really disliked when someone would bring something in and write, they would write a beautiful essay and it would be a, or, you know, a piece of fiction or whatever. And then it would end with something like, and what I learned that day was blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, you don't, you don't need to do that. And you shouldn't do that. You should write the piece in such a way that, you know, the, the reader can probably assume what you learned. But, like, the reader doing that part of the work is important. And it's like, it makes them part of the experience. And also, just saying what you learned and everything completely takes me out of the story. You know, it completely takes me out of the situation and whatever. So it's like, if you can avoid doing that, you definitely should. So I don't know. And I think it's weird because it's like... I don't think people make this critique of songs. Like, what do they want us to take away from this song? I think sometimes it gets made of movies, but not, not in the same way, and only for certain kinds of movies. It's only for, like, a movie that I think is supposed to present a point of view on something. Um, or maybe a movie like Selma might get critiqued if it was like, well, it wasn't as hopeful as I thought it should be, right? Like, I thought that what we should take away from this was hope, um, but I didn't feel hopeful after watching it. And it's like, all right, I guess, you know, that's how you wanted to feel, and you didn't feel that. Um, but the movie didn't tell you, the movie didn't tell you to feel the right thing, in your opinion. So anyway, I, I just think, like, I am not into stuff that tells me how to feel, and I really don't think anyone should be. I think it's like, again, why are you reading a book for someone to tell you how to feel? He could just write a pamphlet that says, like, you know, the commoditization of uh, human life is kind of weird, sad, and messed up, and it would be nice if it wasn't such a thing. The end? I mean, is that is that what you want? I don't know what you want, obviously. I do this. But uh, maybe, maybe that's what you want.